Stay hungry, stay foolish. Our guest today is a learner who courageously took on challenging turnaround roles in industries where he had no prior experience. He used his rigorous French education and elite training at McKinsey to lead five companies as CEO, culminating in the transformation of Best Buy. During these years, he went through a personal transformation from seeking to be the smartest person in the room to becoming a passionate and compassionate leader. By the time he became CEO of Best Buy in 2012, he had led turnarounds at heads of EDS France, Vivendi's video game division, Carlson Wagonlit Travel and Carlson Companies. Despite his achievements by his early 40s, he was feeling disillusioned from chasing success. This is what inspired him to take a step back and spend time looking into his soul to find a better direction for his life. In his study with Catholic monks and a number of CEOs in France, he realized that work is a noble calling to serve others and an expression of love. He believes work must be guided by the pursuit of a purpose with people at its centre. The conviction has shaped his life and his career. C'est un grand plaisir. It's a great pleasure to welcome senior lecturer at Harvard Business School, former chairman and CEO of Best Buy and all those other companies I mentioned. He is the author of The Heart of Business, Leadership Principles for the Next Era of Capitalism. Hubert Jolie, bienvenue. Thank you for having me, Ida. I so look forward to our conversation. It was such a joy to read this book, Hubert. I cover on the show, we cover topics from leadership to authenticity to humility to understanding bias and self-awareness. And I felt this book was a Gordian knot of all those things. But the difference being, they were through the scar tissue of your experience. And I loved the humility and vulnerability you showed throughout this book. It was just a wonderful experience and very unusual for a CEO to take off the mask of the tough guy CEO image and reveal this true person. And I'd love before we start just to tell our audience, if you are a leader or an aspiring leader or even somebody who wants to understand the future of business, this book is a must read. And behind me, you see two copies. One of them is for you. If you sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter, you will be in with a chance to win this magnificent book. Hubert, what about you? I'd love to hear how you feel having got all this out there on the table, paying it forward, all those experiences that you've had. How does it feel now to have it out in the world? We had a critical moment. And so it feels, it feels great to have the book out, but it feels also very earnest. You know, I'm the eternal optimist. Uh, but last year, I had to step back, probably like many of us, and saying out loud, the world we live in is not working. Right, we have this uh, health crisis, this uh, economic crisis, societal crisis, uh, racial issues, certainly in the U.S., uh, environmental issues, geopolitical. I mean, you name it; it's not working. And what's the definition of madness? Right, to do the same thing and hope for a different outcome. And my sense is that we need this urgent uh, uh, and fundamental refoundation of business and leadership around these ideas of purpose and humanity. And that's why I'm so excited to, to help because I think everybody understands that this is the direction we need to go. You know, the, the exclusive, excessive focus on profit, that's not working. So we need, we need business to be a force for good. And we need leaders to not only be great business leaders, be 
also great human leaders. And I think all of us who have been on this journey know how hard this is. So what, one thing that excites me is that this book is really a, uh, you could say, a guide, a handbook for uh, all of us leaders who are keen to move in that direction. Uh, and simply are saying, uh, give me some tools, give me some practical advice, examples. And I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that, you know, I feel I've done a good job. I've done my best. I don't have a good job, but I've done my best to write a good book and put it in people's hands. So a lot of excitement, but also a sense of ticking time bombs and urgency. That's an interesting thing, because one of the reasons I put that question right up front rather than build towards it is the busyness question of CEOs. CEOs are often so busy working in the business that they can't work on the business. But more importantly, as you reveal, they don't have time to work on themselves. And one of the things you show is how leaders need that outside party, that executive coach, that person in their ear, that conciliary who isn't overly invested, who can actually tell them the truth. And as you call it, I love it, the guardrails around you to make sure you don't go off track. The, I think many of us have been raised with the idea of the leader as the superhero, right? Who knows everything, who is there to save the day, too often driven by power, fame, glory, or money. You know, nobody wants to follow a leader like this. Oh, and by the way, here's the scoop. You know, we live in a time where, you know, there's no, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a set of unprecedented crises where there's no manual. Did you have the manual to deal with COVID or with back to the office? Of course, nobody had. And so as leaders, a number of things, right? We need to learn to say, I don't know. We need to learn how to say, I need help. And then we need to also connects with people around us in a genuinely authentic, empathetic fashion. And we saw it last year, right? When, you know, uh, uh, we, everybody went, you know, back home or was on the front line. We saw the humanity of our coworkers. Now, if I've seen people working from home, I know their spouses now, their children, their dogs, their cats, their Wi-Fi problems. If, you know, at Best Buy, we have a, a lot of frontline workers. We saw the health challenges. And so I can never forget this. The people around me on my executive team, they're not just a CFO or a CMO or CHRO and, and people in the organization, they're human beings, duh. And, you know, people talk about the great resignation, right? People reconsidering their life and thinking about going uh, to do something else. So this calls for us leaders uh, for an effort to re-recruit uh, our employees and reconnect with them. What are you going through? What's important to you? What are some of your struggles? What are your dreams? How can we make these happen? So, you know, in 1789, after the storming of the Bastille, uh, Louis XVI turned to Monsieur de la Rochefoucauld and asked him, is this a revolt? And Monsieur de la Rochefoucauld's answer was, no, sire, this is a revolution. I think that's what we're dealing with, Ivan. And I'm so glad you pronounced Monsieur La Rochefoucauld because I was I had it in my notes and I was like, on I hope he says it first. So, th <laughs> thankfully, I'm going to skip forward in, in my notes. I have, as you, you know, I have extensive notes. I took so notes, as many notes in this book. But you're after triggering a thought for me that I'm going to jump to in case we don't get there, which is that moment when an organization uses the excuses the alibis that are out there, the headwinds, as you call it, in our industry are against us. Amazon's stealing our lunch. Technology is killing us, etc, etc. And it's very familiar to a sporting world where we don't have the players. 
we don't have enough money to buy the right players. And that appeared loud and clear to me that any industry is going through these type of revolutions at, at the moment. But it's about how you energize the people. And that's the whole idea of the heart of the business. It's not only the heart of the business, it's the people in the business. And I would love to jump to that because just in case somebody has to tune out, I want to get this right up front. This was core to your success in Best Buy. Let's rewind to uh, 2012, right? At the time, everybody item <laughs> thought that Best Buy was going to die. And for our international audience, right, Best Buy is an electronics, and it's a consumer electronics retailer. There's one like this in every country around the world, about 50 billion in revenue, 1,000 stores. And so the leader in the US, but yet, uh, yes, there was uh, the sense that we were still gonna, Amazon was going to kill us. And the previous management team was blaming uh, you know, Apple opening stores, Amazon competing and not being fair, right? They don't have a cost structure they can offer. So, so, you know, blaming others. Don't you love a leader? They have the best excuses in the world. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's so compelling. Uh, and, of course, when I got the call to consider the job, you know, my first response to uh, Jim Citrin was, <laughs> you're crazy, Jim, right? Because I know nothing about retail. And this place is a zoo. He immediately told me, look, they're not looking for a retailer. They're looking for somebody who's able to take a fresh look and can do a turnaround. And Barry, you know, you have had this uh, vast experience with turnaround and transformation. So do me a favor, at least study. And what I saw is that, you know, the, 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 the world needed Best Buy. As customers, we needed Best Buy to, uh, for at least for some of our purchases, touch, feel, see the products, ask questions. And then the vendors needed Best Buy to showcase the fruit of their billions of dollars of R&D investments, right? If it's just on a shelf at Walmart or online, it, it doesn't do anything. And so what I saw as well was that all of our problems were actually self-inflicted. Our prices were not competitive. Online shopping experience was terrible. The speed of uh, shipping was bad. You know, the store experience had deteriorated. The cost structure was building. The good news was that... Uh, this was all in our control. I didn't need to call Jeff Bezos and say, stop bothering me. You know, it was <laughs> all of us. Now, the advice I was getting, and I want to get to your to the core of your question. The advice I was getting from a lot of analysts was cut, cut, cut. You know, the traditional recipe in turnarounds. Close stores, fire a lot of people, as if people were the problem. What I thought was that, no, people were going to be the key to the solution. So why, you know, I could talk to you about what we did, which was, you know, match Amazon prices, invest online. Uh, we ship now as fast as Amazon, invest in the stores, partner with the world's foremost tech companies so that they can use our stores as their showroom, if you will, to showcase their, their product. That's all very interesting. What's more critical is your point. The essence of the turnaround was its humanity. And so let me give some examples, because of course, every company on the planet says people are the most important thing that they have. So it started with, you know, people first. So listening to people, duh, you know, I spent my first week on the job uh, in a store in St. Cloud, Minnesota, listening to the frontliners and having them tell me, this is what's working, this is what's not working. My job was easy. I just had to take care of what was not working. Uh, make sure we had the right team at the top. Right, and make sure that everybody was united. It's also ends with people. So instead of starting with firing a lot of people, 
I learned that from a client, focus first on growing revenue. It's amazing what revenue growth can do. And if you're going to go after costs, which we had to, focus first on non-salary expenses, which is all of the elements of the cost structures that have nothing to do with people, which at most companies is the majority of the cost structure. And if that's not sufficient, yes, maybe you'll get to reduce headcount, but then you'll try to redeploy people. You'll treat them as well on the way out as on the way in. And then finally, this energy thing. It's all about creating energy. It's not about me coming up with a best plan. It's about, you know, in physics, we learn that energy is a finite quantity. In a human organization, it's not. You can actually create energy. How you do this? Co-create the plan as opposed to telling people what to do. Work with your team, obviously, to, to create the plan. Get going. Don't, don't wait for things to be perfect. And then celebrate small wins, green shoes. If there's problems along the way, be candid. Oh, this one didn't work out quite as intended. We need to rework it. And so it's all about this creating. An, so it's the humanity of the transformation that allowed us to uh, to save the company as we all work together with great intensity uh, and, and, and humility, uh, uh, you know, to save the company. We had John Cotter, the guru of change on the show a couple of weeks ago, and John provided the theory and he said, you know, we don't have that many case studies. And then the serendipity I have of this show is just incredible how it falls together. And then I read your book and I went, this is like, this is like the playbook and this is like the execution. And I just wanted to say that because if people are listening, those two books go so beautifully together. John Cotter's Change and Hubert Jolie's Heart of, the Biz Heart of Business. But I wanted to come back to something you said there about humility. On this show, Hubert, I wear a pin to reflect the feeling I got from the show, if I have one, that is. But I, I stumbled upon the most beautiful pin that I felt reflected yours. And what it is here is a heart with a, with a butterfly emerging from the heart. And I thought that is just nails this principle. But I mentioned the pin because you too wore a pin in those early days, speaking of humility, when you were brand new in the business and you went down to that store in St. Cloud. Have you got it there? I Didn't still have that. <laughs> Brilliant. CEO in training, Matt Furman, our head of communication, came up with that. I thought that was so cool. That period of disillusionment you went through was almost like a step back to kind of look at things you explored inside. Who am I? Who do I want to be? What type of leader? But then the, and that's why I, I think this pin is so beautiful. The, the butterfly that emerged from that cocoon was the new Uber, which was more compassionate, human, and purpose-driven. And Th that messaging you constantly mentioned, because John Cotter mentioned this, that the need for constant communication, but authentic communication was one of the things that came out loud and clear to me as core to this turnaround. It wasn't about just all those great initiatives that you did. It was how you did it. It's so true. And, and you know, you talk about my own transformation and, and the book is, you know, the book is really three things in, in one, right? Uh, it's not the traditional book uh, that a CEO would write about. Look how great I am! It. <laughs> you know, this is the uh, this is what I did. Uh, it does have some elements. You know, it tells the story of the Best Buy turnaround, but it's a much bigger book than this. It uh, so it has that. It also has uh, the story of my own transformation. I'll come back to this, and it shares this philosophy that you know the excessive focus of profit is a thing has to be a thing of the past. 
and that business needs to be about pursuing a noble purpose, putting people at the center, embracing all stakeholders, creating the right environment for people to blossom and treating profit as an outcome. But on, on the personal transformation, I grew up you know, as a McKinsey consultant, right? Hard charging, problem solver. I was good at this. You know, it's all about performance optimization. I thought that my left brain was the key thing to use and that uh, being smart was the way to go. And in 2009, uh, when I was CEO of Carson Companies, uh, my head of HR, uh, Elizabeth Bastoni, uh, said, would you like to use a coach? And I said, am I doing something wrong? Remember at the time, your coaches was, coaching was remedial. And you know, if Jack or Mary were using a coach, she said, oh, do they have a problem? And she said, no, 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 this is different. Marshall Goldsmith, the father of executive coaching, is helping successful leaders get better. So his clients include you know, Alan Mullally, the then CEO of Ford, uh, Dr. Jenkins, the, the president of the World Bank, you know, obviously very successful people. And I said, oh, that's cool. I want to do that. And Marshall so helped me because he's written this great book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, in which he lists the 20 quirks of successful people. And Aiden, at the time, out of the 20, I had 13 of them. So I was, you know, like adding too much value, wanting to be the smartest person in, in, in the room. And uh, so I worked with him. And I, when I joined Best Buy, because uh, there was an element of, of self-improvement, but also communication, I told my team, look, this, let's agree. This turnaround is going to be hard, right? The reason we know this is that everybody thinks we're going to die. So it's going to be hard. So that means that all of us need to be the best leaders we can be. Uh, and that includes me. And I have a coach. He's going to come and ask you for feedback, which he did. Uh, and then I shared with my team, look, uh, thank you for everything you said. Uh, these are the three things based on your input I've decided to work on. And I'm going to follow up with you and ask you for advice on how I can get better on these things. And three or four months from now, I'll follow up and see how I'm doing and ask you for advice. Note that I didn't say I apologize for, you know, maybe misspeaking. And this is not about feedback. This is about feet forward. What would I like to improve? And then being vulnerable, sharing it, believe me, first time I did that, excruciating pain, having to share with your team, with my team, what I wanted to get better at, and then asking for help. Do you have any advice for me? You know, a few years before that, when I would get feedback, I would say, who said that? What's wrong with them? <laughs> you know? And of course, adopting that feed forward approach, communicating to the rest of the team, it's okay to have areas for improvement. It's okay to share it with the rest of the team. It's okay to ask for help. And of course, at Best Buy, did we need to get better? Of course. <laughs> And so if we could help each other, um, and as a leader, you know, you, you have the opportunity to role model, not preach, but just role model. And so now at Best Buy, everybody has got a coach. If you run into somebody from Best Buy, you can ask them, what are you working on? And they'll say, you know, number one, number two, number three. They are, maybe they'll ask you, what are you working on? How can I be helpful to you? you know? Or they'll ask you for advice. So that was a huge mind shift for me, and I give credit to my good friend Marshall for helping me. Brilliant. And you you yourself are an executive coach, a CEO coach now as well. So that's been part of your transformation. 
Yeah, after, you know, after I've passed the baton of uh, CEO and then chairman at Best Buy, I had to decide what I was going to do with my next chapter. I was not going to move down to Florida to play golf with aging white men because I don't <laughs> play golf. So, And I didn't want to be a CEO anymore. And I've done that. And so my purpose is to help the next generation of, uh, of leaders. That's why I wrote the book. That's why I'm teaching at Harvard Business School. And that's why with my beautiful wife, Hortense, we are uh, coaching and mentoring you know, CEOs and uh, and senior executives, which is a great joy uh, to be able to do that. And just because you mentioned Hortense, I, I love the name Hortense as well. Hortense Le Gentil, like it, what a beautiful name. I, You know what it, what it meant for me is she's beyond tense, you know, uh, be, you know, so ultimately present, you know, I, that's the, what that name means to me. But I mentioned Hortense because behind you on your bookshelf, for those who are watching us, is Hortense's book. And Hortense is a forthcoming guest on the show, Aligned. So Hortense is also an executive coach. And as you can see, forward there by Marshall Goldsmith. Thanks for holding it up. But yeah, Hortense uh, is coming onto the show as well, Uber. So a nice little bit of serendipity coming on the show after Christmas. Let's let's get back into it because there's so much here. I, I by the way, I'm only on question two. <laughs> so, <laughs> so so there's some people gonna be listening to that and go, C'est pas possible, c'est de la merde, right? They're gonna be going, You can't do that. That's not true. People don't like work. And you go, Okay, I'm gonna put this right up front in the book. That's true. Not work in the sense that it used to be and you start the book with some questions as a good coach would do why do we work for power fame glory money to make a difference in the world or because we have to so that we can do something else i love working and i've worked in places that i didn't really like and i felt there was something wrong with me and actually i i that's why these books are so valuable to people and kind of going it's not you that it needs updating, although you need to be constantly working on yourself. The system needs to change. And this is something that you talk about very dearly at the start of the book. The working world is not working. Yeah, and there's a tragedy of disengagement at work. At work. I think Gallup says that 80% of people are not engaged at work. And, and there in, the, in the book, I tell, you know, I remember <laughs> my first job working in a supermarket putting, you know, price tags on, on uh, vegetable cans. That was not particularly motivating. And uh, I decided at the time that I would always remember the feeling I had then, that I would do my best when I would be in a position of leadership uh, to create a better environment. And I think the, I have learned so much on that. It's not a, uh, you know, it, it doesn't need to be this way. And it's and, uh, finding meaning in work, which I think is, you know, what gives you joy, um, doesn't, is not limited to working in healthcare or working with Mother Teresa when Mother Teresa was uh, in India. This can be done in every job. It starts with self-reflection. And that's, we, we did a lot of work at Best Buy on this, asking everyone, what drives you? It was a store general manager in Boston. He would ask everyone in his store, what is your dream? At Best Buy or outside of Best Buy, what is your dream? Okay, write it down in the break room. Okay, and then my job is to help you achieve your dream. 
And I think that in, including in this time of pandemic, if as leaders we can connect, not only so first with ourselves, right? How do we want to be remembered? What kind of a leader do we want to be? And then be curious about the purpose of people around us. And then if all of us can work together to find meaning in our work. And you know, when you ask people you know, around what is their true driver, most of the time it's the golden rule, right? Making a positive difference, doing something good to other people. And in most jobs, that's an opportunity you have, and you can do this just around you. It doesn't need to move to entail moving to uh, to Calcutta, although there's nothing wrong with it, but uh, you can do it here in New York or in Paris or in Dublin. Uh, and so that was a big lesson. And I love this quote from uh, the Lebanese poet uh, Khalil Gibran, right? Work is love made visible. It was the perfect quote for your book, by the way. It just absolutely nailed it. So let's build on that. I was thinking about that whole idea because I, I, a couple of weeks ago, we had Manfred Ketz, the Fries, the famous uh, leadership guru on the show, and uh, great guy, very, very fun chat. And Man, Manfred and I were talking about this, that I, I also am an executive coach, I haven't told you that I, I do a couple of work with a couple of CEOs. And when I ask them to work on themselves and what I say because they they just want a to do list, and I go, you need to first get your to be list. What are you? What do you want to be before you get to the to do list? And sometimes they get impatient and they're kind of going, "Oh, I made the wrong choice with this coach." Right? <laughs> the overwhelming feeling is you need to have a a bigger why than your try. So it it it's a gravitational pull, and I say that to say people are going to go, "Yeah, but what about the person in sector seven G of the business?" And you say, "Well." I can actually talk to Mary and go, Mary, what's your dream? And she goes, I want to live in this type of house in this type of area. And you talked about that because that's how granular this can get. I'd love you to take us through that. Yeah. So one of the associates in the Boston store, her dream was to get a better place for her children. And, you know, taking care of your children, if you're a mother, oh my God, right? That's a, that's a key thing. So so again, purpose doesn't need to be a shattering. It can be very... It has it is genuine and it has proximity, and so then the, the manager in that store said, "Okay, so let's work on that. In order for you to be able to do this, you're going to need to progress at the company. You know, because in order to afford the kind of apartment you're looking for, you need you need to become a manager, maybe an assistant store manager. So let me work with you on your development, and that's how then, by the way, in this particular case, you can connect what drives the person individually." with then the purpose of the company, with the work and the purpose of the company. In the case of Best Buy, it turns out that the purpose is to, you know, we're, in the ha- we're not a retailer, we are really in the happiness business. We're there to help, you know, uh, customers. We're here to, we said, enrich lives through technology by addressing key human needs and, and treating customers as human beings. That, you know, makes it easy to connect. Uh, and so one of the things that people could say, well, how do you do this at scale, right? You know, uh, when you have 100,000, you know, employees or at Walmart, it's more than a million, whatever the number is. Uh, here's the thing. Scale doesn't matter because you do it one employee at a time. And, you know, the role the CEO play is one thing. The role that the local management and the local team, you know, what they do and how they are 
I love your point about bees, right? Uh, that's essential. And so uh, creating this environment, you know, there's a macro element, but there's also a micro element. So I, I, I learned so much from the frontliners, from the, you know, field employees at Best Buy and my colleagues. <laughs> it was uh, shattering. Yeah, and, and you say that as well, because this is the other thing, the archaic view of creating a vision or a strategy. And you, you mentioned this briefly earlier on, but I think it's so important because that view is still predominant where it's like, oh, the smartest people and highest paid, sometimes not the smartest, but the highest paid people in the organization, the hippos, go off into a room, create the strategy, create the vision, and then force feed it down the organization and nobody adopts it. And they go, why does that not work? But you took a totally different radical approach. And it's an unusual one. And it paid off big time. And you know, the other thing that people do is put in place incentive, financial incentives, hoping it's going to lead to behavioral change. And of course, you have to be careful. If you use carrots and sticks, you're going to get donkeys, right? And maybe that's not what you want, donkeys, you know, in your organization. So one of the things that we know now, you know, social science has made huge progress, of course, is that motivation is intrinsic. Uh, we could ask everybody on the show to raise their hand if they like to be told what to do. Now, we're not going to be able to see them, Aiden, but I'm going to bet with great confidence that I don't, you know, there's nobody raising their hand saying, I love to be told what to do. We love autonomy. We love to do what we want to do. And so this has massive implications. Right? This revolution is going from profit to purpose and humanity and going from top down, you know, smart people to uh, much more bottom-up and inside-out, creating the right environment. And of course, it's always a combination, but uh, this, this is the revolution. So what does that mean concretely about uh, you know, these, uh, you know, this change? Let me make it very concrete. We had worked on our strategies. This is now 2016. Our strategy is to enrich lives through technology by addressing key human needs. It expands you know, our addressable market. You know, it's the it's a very positive thing. But let's imagine, Adam, that you and I walk into a Best Buy store and we tell the general manager and the team there, we have great news. We have a new corporate purpose to enrich lives through <laughs> technology by addressing key human needs. And they're going to say, I don't know, we love you. You look like good guys, you know, nothing against you. But what did you just say there? What do you want us to do tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. when we take our shift? They're going to say, I have no idea what you just said. And so when the team did, they organized a training in all of our stores. So on a Saturday, we closed the stores for a couple of hours, which in retail, you, know, you rarely do. And uh, instead of you know, big PowerPoint presentation videos, maybe from the CEO or the CMO, uh, we asked people to do a few exercises in small groups. And, and, and uh, you know, one of them was share with each other your life story. And the other one was share with each other the story of somebody in your life who's an inspiring friend to you. And so we went in small groups. I was paired with a young woman. She had been in an abusive relationship with an ex-boyfriend. She had been homeless. And for her, Best Buy is her family. It's her home. So all of a sudden, I see her as a human being, not just an employee. And then the inspiring friend... For me, it's my older brother, Philip. He's a wonderful guy. I love him. He always uh, inspires me to be better and so forth. Uh, And really cares about me. 
And so then we said, well, you know, what we're trying to do here, which we already do when we are at our best, we are trying to treat each other and the customers as human beings. And we try to treat each other and the customers as if we were an inspiring friend to them, not treating them as a walking wild. Oh, everybody gets this, right? And that's the only thing we're asking people to do. And that is really bringing purpose to the heart of the business. And of course, beyond that, for this to be sustainable, because we've all been to trainings, right, that sound wonderful at the time, uh, you need to create the right environment for this to be sustainable. And that's one of the things we can maybe we'll talk about, but that to make it sustainable, you need to create the right environment so that people can, can be themselves. Let's get there. And I'm going to frame it with the before and after story of Jordan and his T-Rex. So Jordan, the little kid, gets T-Rex from Santa. You tell the story. And, and don't, let's not give it away. We'll give it away at the end of the, the, the after story. So the before after story actually personifies what you experienced as a mystery shopper. We've all been in stores, right, where you get into a store and the experience is, is not great. Where So when I, before I, I joined Best Buy, I, I wanted to see what the store experience was. So I went to the store in Edina, which is south of Minneapolis. Best Buy is headquartered in Minneapolis. And I get into that store and, uh, you know, the... the uh, it's, it's a cavernous store, you know, dusty. There's three or four associates in one corner. They don't bother talking to me. Uh, I'm trying to buy a screen uh, protector for my phone. So I find one on a, in an aisle after looking for it. And then I speak to one of the associates. I disturb them. And, you know, it's they're, they're, I don't know what your experience but they're hard to put, right? You always get bubbles and so on. And said, could you help me put this on? And uh, he says, uh, yeah, for $17. And I said, you got to be kidding me, right? I could have bought this online, right? And not have the trouble of driving to your store. So probably enough in, by the way, when something goes wrong on the front line, never blame the frontliners. It's the system they're in. They had been told to charge the $17 and they probably were given no good reason to take care of the customers, right? And so that was the miserable experience. And so this uh, young Jordan, yes, he had gotten uh, for holiday, for Christmas, uh, a dinosaur toy. And uh, the dinosaur toy got sick, right? The way we know the dinosaur was sick is that the head was dismantled from the rest of the <laughs> Very sick. His head fell off. So, uh, and so, of course, they, they, they go to the store uh, where they bought it, so Best Buy. And at most stores, you know, if it had been similar to, you know, the, my uh, mystery shopper experience, they would have been sent to the toy aisle and with some luck, maybe been able to uh, buy a, a replacement. And, and in so many cases, right, whether it's in retail or other businesses, you know, the customer experience is simply not great and we're not treated as human beings. And I don't care whether it's online or in a store, you always want to be treated like, you know, if you matter, right? And that your needs are, uh, are addressed. So we leave the suspense right here at this yeah. point. <laughs> Beautifully done. So let, we'll come back to the after story. So, but I, there's something there just to tie that to the work you did on vision and purpose, because Oftentimes, the articulation 
of the purpose or the vision doesn't actually message sent is not actually message received by people. And you made a very, very core point, which is, if people can't articulate the vision themselves, how are they supposed to express it to customers? And how did you get around this? Because this is somewhere where you may have worked really well to get a, a corporate purpose, but people are kind of going, I don't know how to express that corporate purpose. And it's tied to this Jordan story as well. Um, you know, purpose has become quite trendy, right? I think most companies around the world now are busy writing down their corporate purpose and then putting it on the website. And I think this is really serious stuff. Uh, and of course, the, the challenge is once you've written it, how do you, you know, uh, put it to work? How do you make it real? But it starts with actually uh, working on it. One of the convictions I have is that uh, our search for meaning as individuals has to serve as the foundation for defining a business or corporate purpose. You know, a company is not some kind of abstract organization. A company, at the end of the day, it's a human organization made of individuals working together in pursuit of a goal. And for me, philosophically, why profit is an imperative, it's not the ultimate goal, it's an outcome. And that's how you have to, uh, to treat it. So how do you define that, that purpose? For me, it's at the intersection of four circles. Sometimes people call this ikigai, right? So it's what the world needs, what you're uniquely good at, what you're passionate about, right? Which is tied to your own search for meaning and then how you can make uh, money. And these four circles are important, right? The first one, what the world needs, at Best Buy, one of the things we did is at some point after we had saved the company, we said, we're not a retailer. That's not our purpose. And by the way, that's, that was important because if we had thought of ourselves as a brick and mortar retailer, we'd be dead by now. So we connected with the underlying human needs, whether it's entertainment, communication, health, wellness, you know, your, your productivity. And how can we serve these needs in a whole variety of, uh, uh, of ways? But starting with our search for meaning as the foundation is important. So one of the exercises we did uh, back, I think it was in 2016, when we were working on our strategy and our purpose, you know, every quarter I didn't, we would get the executive team together, right, for an offsite, working on our plans and whatnot. One time I asked uh, every one of the executive team members, so 10 of us, to come to the offsite with a picture of ourselves when we were little. Okay? <laughs> we got some really cute pictures, right? <laughs> Believe me. And then over dinner, we spend the evening sharing with each other our life story and what drives us in life, how we want to be remembered. A very good exercise, by the way, for every leader listening. And by the way, everybody is a leader, right? It's write down your retirement speech. How do you want to be remembered? And what we saw in this evening was a number of things. One, everybody on the team is actually a human being. They're not just a CFO or a CHO or a CMO. They're a human being. And two, with a couple of exceptions, all of us were driven by the same kind of purpose in life, which is the golden rule, like do something positive to other people. And so we then we said, look, we're the leadership team of Best Buy. Why don't we use this platform, Best Buy, to be a force for good in the world and build an organization that employees are going to love, customers are going to love, vendors are going to love, 
community is going to love and shareholders are going to love. That makes it much bigger than just, oh, we're going to double the share price or decuple the share price, which is what we did. We went from 11 to 110. Uh, and, and then it changes everything, right? So in every transformation meeting we have at different levels in the organization, what people do now is they start the meeting by describing for themselves why this change, why this transformation is important to them personally. So we have an initiative in healthcare helping aging seniors stay in their home and live there independently longer. So maybe Alison is going to say, well, I have my grandmother. You know, she's 95. I worry about her. If we can make this happen, will it impact the lives of millions of aging citizens? That's really meaningful, right? And, and then the story of this young woman, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if we can change her life by giving her the opportunity to, uh, to grow at the company and afford to have a, uh, uh, an apartment for her family, this is meaningful stuff. So there's a, a deep uh, grounding. Uh, and I think that sometimes a mistake we've made, that I've made is to have our head disconnected from our heart and our soul. Today, it's not even an option anymore. We have to lead with all of our body parts, our head, our heart, our soul, our guts, our ears, our eyes, all of the above. I love it, Hubert. And just to bring the... So some people will, as you said at the time when you first were offered a, an executive coach, you're kind of going, it's a bit fluffy. It's not strong enough. It's not Gordon Gecko on Wall Street that people love that image. And I wanted to tie that to what you said there about changing what you see, what you see changes. And you changed what you saw as your customer base. You changed what you saw as your purpose. But then that opened up the shackles of the industry you served. And there is a, 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 an incident you talk about at the end of the book where you had a strategy meeting and you went, what Rita McGrath, who's a former guest on the show, magnificent strategist says, brilliant guest, yes. And she, she says, you're not competing in an industry, you're competing in an arena, and it opens up the whole world for you. And when your purpose was serving humanity better, that means you can actually open up your your outlets of your business. And it totally changed. And this even evolved even further during COVID. I'd love your thoughts on this, because this is where those people who are still leading with their brain first might go, actually, there's a win there. If I do it this way, and then I'll actually see leading with your heart is actually the way forward to win with your brain. And this is so important in this COVID, I'm not even going to say post-COVID world, because I think it feels we're going to be with it for a long time. Many companies have been very negatively impacted by COVID, right? So I'm speaking later today with the CEO of an airline. You know, believe me, that's not great, right? Or think about the restaurant industry, the hospitality industry, some of the retailers, uh, you know, if you're in the apparel industry, nobody's buying bottoms anymore, right? Because we're all on Zoom. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, for me, this... COVID thing is a little bit like 66 million years ago when planet Earth was hit by an asteroid and all of the dinosaurs died and new species emerged. And so as we move forward, this is not a restart. This is not a, let's go back to normal, the way it was. It's not happening. And so there's a reset for, for companies that leaders need to orchestrate. 
And for me, a first component of the reset is to reimagine their business, redefine it around purpose. So if you are a, let's say, a hospital system like Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, which is one of the foremost you know, hospital systems in the world, if you define your business as a brick and mortar hospital system, you're going to be limited. But if you define it, no, no, I am in the health and wellness industry, and I'm going to use people and technology to serve human beings around the world. I vastly expand my addressable market, right? Or if you're a restaurant, you say, no, no, my business is to be a restaurant. And then you say, no, I'm actually in the business of providing meals and experiences to customers. Of course, I'm going to do, and everybody did this, right? Home delivery, maybe I'll send a chef to your home. Uh, I'll do a whole variety of things. Maybe I'll build an entire business that's going to be outside the four walls of my restaurant in a dark kitchen, and I'll, I'll be, uh, you know, it's going to be a bigger business. So if we redefine around human needs, it vastly expands the addressable market. And by the way, it's much more motivating, you know, for for people at the company to know that what they're doing is uh, is making a difference in the world. And that actually ties to something you said later in the book, because this was particularly interesting and a great exercise for a leader in an organization to do. You were curious to understand why blue shirts, which are the best buy frontliners, what their opinions were on why customers should purchase with Best Buy. And you didn't get very articulate answers because they didn't know. But oftentimes, like you said, a leader might blame the frontliner, but the actual fault is with them. When you point the finger, there's three pointing right back at you and the leader should look in the mirror. Yeah, and so that was part of uh, my first week in the, uh, you know, in my job working in the St. Cloud store. I did ask them, so, what, so when you work with customers, what what are you trying to emphasize? And there was bits and pieces all over, but it was not clear. And I think our imperative as leaders is to define that purpose and put it to work so that then everybody at the company is aligned and in support of that purpose and you know, is there to make a positive difference. So uh, you know, the book behind me, Otans' book is called Alliance, right? It's this idea of, uh, first aligning yourself, but then aligning everybody at the organization in support of that uh, of that purpose. So our role as a leader, you know, is not to come up with all of the tactics and the strategies. I mean, there's no way we can do this, but to make sure we have a clear purpose and then create the environment in which everybody, you know, is inspired uh, and, and mobilized by that uh, by that purpose it makes a huge difference. I found this really interesting that you started with the frontliners most leaders would not they'd start somewhere higher up where it's more visible what they're doing but there was a key piece in the best buy story and that was best buy's founder dick schultz and you aligned with him as well this story was magnificent so uh these so again go back to 2012 dick uh, schultz wonderful man had founded the company in 1966 but in 2012 you know uh, after Best Buy had been a, a wonderful company, we, you know, they hit a difficult patch, and he's, uh, he decides at some point for a whole variety of reasons to leave the board. He's angry, and he's trying to orchestrate a take private of the companies to work with a bunch of private equity players to buy the company, uh, take it out of the public eye, so that he could restructure it and rebuild it for for you know for for the better. Um, and I'm recruited in the middle of that. 
<laughs> now, even though I had lived in Minneapolis because of my previous job for a number of years, Dick and I had never met. I had met Brad Anderson, who had been his CEO for a number of years. In fact, Brad was on my board at, uh, at Calson. So I asked, you know, Brad to uh, introduce me to Dick because what I felt, and I, I said this to the employees on day one, look, you know, whether we're going to be public or private, to me, doesn't make a big difference. Oh, and by the way, as we did to Dick, whether we're public or private, he's still going to be our founder. It is still going to be a larger shareholder. So as far as I'm concerned, we all work for him, right? So because I wanted to eliminate the tension. And I found, I thought that, you know, when a house is divided, you know, it cannot stand, right? If we're divided amongst ourselves, we don't need the enemy to, de- to uh, defeat us. We will do it to ourselves. So I thought it was important to unite everybody at the company, to unite the board, and to unite to have Dick as our founder uh, be on board. So I reached out to him, and my first meeting with him, uh, I, I came with a jacket and a tie. And my resume, I said, Dick, uh, in normal circumstances, you would have actually interviewed me, of course, for the job. And so I thought I should introduce myself to you. Here's my resume. And, and then we had a, I think he was touched by this. Uh, and then we had a great conversation, even though, you know, he was a, a galactic expert at retail and knew nothing about retail. We were actually quite united on key values of people and, and customers and, and wanting to save Best Buy. Uh, and there was a number of other steps, you know, eventually the, the, the private equity players were not able to uh, or, or convinced that they should take the, the company private. We tried to do another thing, which was a, a pipe, a, pipe, a public investment in a private, uh, excuse me, a private investment in a public entity. That didn't work out. And when that didn't work out, I still told Dick, look, uh, you know, I still want to work with you. So tell me. And eventually, so there was a funny moment where he had said uh, along the way, so if we take the company private, we'll keep you as CEO. And your job is going to be to implement our plan. And I said, Dick, I'm really, really good at taking input but probably like you, not very good at taking direction. And we had a big laugh, right? So eventually, uh, you know, he came back as chairman emeritus, not on the board, but we wanted to recognize and we wanted to honor him. And I hired him as my personal advisor. And I would regularly reach out to him for advice. And what was wonderful about him is that he never tried to use that position to tell me what to do. It was a moment where we were working on a specific marketing idea. And I asked him, for, I informed him, I asked him for advice. He didn't like the idea. It doesn't matter what the idea is. He didn't like it. But he said, Hubert, this is your decision. And everybody, you, you make the decision and everybody should rally behind you. What a wonderful, generous sign of uh, you know, caring and humility and leadership. You know, leadership is not about having people do what you tell them to do. <laughs> I wanted to mention something there. You mentioned Dick and you mentioned how he supported you. And I thought about, and even the terminology you used about handing over the baton when you did from chairman to CEO and then actually when you stepped down altogether from Best Buy, that the period of handing over the baton, if people out there just picture a relay race, there's a little bit of a period where both runners are running and there's a supporting element. And you certainly did this. This is why you stepped into the chairman role, 
But I, there's more to it than that. I, and this is the key part here for so many people who are successful in their roles is not to be over identify with the persona that they've created. So you say it was easy for you to step away because you felt you'd done your job and you felt that you weren't over identified with the role. And that's a big error that so many of us make in our lives. And there was this point where I felt that uh, the time had come to move on. We had accomplished quite a bit of uh, uh, what uh, I'd set out to accomplish you know, back in 2012. Uh, importantly, you know, we had a strategy, we had momentum, and we had a wonderful team that was uh, clearly able to uh, move, the, move things forward. Uh, we had a, an investor day coming up, and I wanted the team standing in front of the investors to be the team that was going to be carrying out the strategy for the next pick a number, three or four years. And while I probably had another year or two in me, I didn't have you know three or four years. So I felt this was the, the, the right time. Importantly, to your point, I was content. I, uh, I wrote an article, I think in 2012, that <laughs> goes exactly to your point. The title of the article uh, in the Star Tribune in Minneapolis was, I am not the CEO of Best Buy. Of course I have this job and I love this job and I'm going to do my best to do this job. But one day I won't have this job. And by the way, one of my responsibilities is to build a team that's going to be able to carry it forward. So I have the responsibility to become dispensable and then be able to, uh, to move on. So for us leaders, when we are driven by, when we are clear about our purpose, rather than our identity tied to a job. So for me, my purpose is to try to make a positive difference on people around me and use the platform I have to make a positive difference in the world. So when I say to pass the baton, I said, okay, so my main job now is to make sure that Corey, my wonderful successor, you know, is successful. And by the way, one of the things that's going to be key for me is move out of my office and not show up, right? So that she can shine and be available to her in the background, right? So I had to disappear, even though I was you know, the chairman, I was uh, not trying to uh, bring a, a, sh a shadow to this. But then that made it easier to define my next chapter, which is you know, what we've talked about. It's about helping the next generation of leaders because that's my purpose. My purpose hasn't changed, my job has. Uh, and you know, when <laughs> CEOs, you know, they have a certain way of life, they, they have an entourage. I didn't have much of an entourage, but some, sometimes you fly, you fly private and so forth. If you're too hung up on these things, you're going to be unhappy. So, so no, these are toys they give me for a while. That's not me. You know, I don't need this. And so all of this is to illustrate. And, and frankly, I'm not better than anybody else. Right. But the importance of our spirituality as leaders and the importance of self-reflection you know, especially in this time of unprecedented crisis, right? Remember, Aiden, in the old days when we used to fly, right? On the plane, you know, the steward or the stewardess could tell us, if the oxygen mask comes down, put it on yourself first before you can help others. In this time of unprecedented crisis, in order to lead others, we need to do a good job of leading ourselves. So being clear again about our purpose, how we want to be remembered, uh, exercising, breathing, uh, at the end of each day or at the end of each week, reflecting, 
did I do a good job? Did I do my best? It's not even do a good job. Did I do my best today or this week to be the kind of leader I want to be, to work on my priority, to be kind to Ida or Mary or, you know, what have you. And by the way, this question that I got from Marshall Goldsmith, did I do my best? It's not, was I perfect? Because I think one of the things I've learned is we have to be kind to ourselves. So if today I didn't do my best, right, I give myself a four on a scale of one to 10, there's always tomorrow. And I'm going to go back to it tomorrow. And by the way, I'm going to ask you know, my best friend, Ivan, for help. So he didn't do my best. He said, do you have any advice for me? How do you deal with that? Right? And so that spiritual leadership uh, or the spirituality of all of us as leaders is, I think, essential. Beautiful. And I just wanted to build on it because that, that's why the importance of this personal understanding your personal purpose, just like we said with Best Buy, understanding your purpose and organization opens up the arenas. So does opening yourself up because then you might go, I'm working in a job in an organization, I don't really enjoy it, but I'm well paid and I have golden handcuffs. But by understanding my purpose, I might be able to point that purpose at something else that may seem in a totally different arena, but I can play there. And I, I think that's something that I certainly got. There's, there's this constant flow between the person and the organization and the business world, which I, I absolutely love and very difficult to execute. And you did a great job of that. But I, I, wa I want to build on something because going back, like you toggle between the heart and the brain, the left brain in particular, and for those people who are, Aiden, will you just ask him about how he did the turnaround? <laughs> so there's some people out there want to know about the turnaround story. And I'm going to start here. You alluded to it earlier on, but I have a quote that will introduce this question. Here is a typical scenario. Company struggles, company announces job cuts, layoffs, restructuring, Wall Street applauds, share price goes up as thousands of employees go out the door. We have seen this movie before and heard its soundtrack of fear, anger and disbelief. Plus, this movie often has sequels with multiple rounds of restructuring. Turnarounds have come to be viewed as a kind of blood sport, a race to the bottom, a vicious slashing of headcount spending and customer service. You say, it doesn't have to be. You suggest another way. And you say here, and I love the chapter title here, how can we turn around a business without everybody hating us? <laughs> and this is the beautiful story of Renew Blue. You know, and when I joined Best Buy in 2012, I had done a few of these turnarounds and I had, had the opportunity to uh, uh, to learn. And as we said earlier, the, the the focus was not cut, cut, cut. It was about, you know, fixing the elements of the business that was broken, particularly from a customer standpoint, and then having a very human approach to the turnaround by starting by listening, building the team, uh, and creating energy within the organization. The underlying philosophy uh, is what I want to describe. And I learned that philosophy from a client of mine, Jean-Marie Descarpentries. Uh, who was the CEO of a company when I was at McKinsey. And uh, over a dinner, you know, we had invited him to the McKinsey office in Paris and wanted to you know, sell him some projects to help him with his, uh, with his work. And instead, we got a lecture from him. He had just been to a seminar with other CEOs. And he told us, look, uh, this is what we discussed. The purpose of a company, of a corporation, is not to make money. That was in 1992, right? The purpose of a company is not, of course, it's an imperative. 
Uh, and you have to think about this. And once I've said it, everybody's going to say it's obvious, and I'll say, yeah, but you actually have to do it, and I'll say how. Uh, there's three imperatives in business. You have, of course, a financial imperative. You have a business imperative, which is you need to have customers who buy your products and you know they're happy with it. And then you have a human imperative, a people imperative. You need to have the right people, the right teams that are properly equipped and motivated so that they can uh, do their job. He said, sometimes people want to make trade-offs between these three things. The only way to make money is to have less people or you know, reduce the service. No, no, no. He says the best companies simultaneously perform on the three dimensions of people, business, and finance at the same time. And the reason for this, that's the aha, is that you have to take things in a specific order. He says you have to start with the people imperative, then the business imperative, and then the financial imperative, because excellence on the people imperative is what leads to excellence on the business imperative which leads to excellence on the financial imperative. And you have to treat profit as an imperative and an outcome. What does it mean concretely? I'm going to give you a few examples. Uh, everybody does you know, their monthly performance review meetings to look at the business and so forth. Don't start with the financial results. Ends with the financial results. Start with people and organization. Then go to uh, business, so products, customers, you know, services, uh, what have you. And end with the financial results. If you end with financial results, your CFO will make sure that you spend enough time on it. But at least you will have had a chance to understand the drivers and what can be done about them. If you start with financial results, believe me, you're going to spend the entire meeting pouring over numbers in greater and greater and greater details that are meaningless because you're looking at the temperature. So imagine a doctor. You got, would you go to a doctor item that's really a specialist of the thermometer. And they're gonna manage your temperature beautifully. Maybe they'll put the thermometer in the fridge, by the way. <laughs> you wanna have somebody who's focused on the drivers of your health. Uh, and so adopting this people, business, finance philosophy, in everything you do in your monthly meeting, when you do your planning, when you do performance reviews, all of the above, is a, mind, is a very significant mind shift that uh, was the underlying philosophy behind the turnaround at Best Buy. And what's interesting, which we underscore in the book, is that this philosophy that sounds nice, right, is not just good when the go when things are, are great. This is the philosophy we employed when we were supposed to die. <laughs> so, and it worked. Yeah. For those people listening to the show, Uber wrote the forward for Felix Oberholzer G's book, Better, Simpler Strategy. And I'm going to actually stick on the end of this show when Felix talks about you and the turnaround and he, he'll break that down into a strategic perspective. But I, I felt that was not for our conversation. It's, it's much deeper than that. A couple of more topics and one, one piece of business we need to, unfinished business we need to close, which is Jordan and the T-Rex. But one of the things here was the support. I, I thought about you coming in and they're like going... Oh, Jolie's going to come around and turn around the business. He's the turnaround king. He's done it five times before. C'est magnifique, right? And uh, then you turn around and you're going to go to the board. I'm going to do this by starting with people. And many, many CEOs who listen to this show are going to go, my board would decapitate me for that if that happened. I'd be like Jordan's T-Rex afterwards if, the, if I said that to my business. 
But you do emphasize the importance of having the right board. And this is very relevant. Our latest show was about Enron and how so many things slipped through the cracks. I'd love your thoughts on the board and the, the support of the board and how important that is. And by the way, going back to 2012, you know, the turnaround was less about speaking and much more about doing, right? So we didn't impress everybody with our rhetoric. In fact, the previous management team had lost its credibility internally and with the shareholders because they were saying a lot and not doing much. So our focus was more about a say-do ratio, saying less and doing more. And that's how we we built our credibility through the the results we and the results we achieve and the momentum we created as relates to the board. And that can be true for, you know, if you're not the CEO of the company, uh, it can be true for your support system. You can see the board, sometimes CEO do this, as an impediment, as a necessary evil, as your bosses, uh, all of the above. My view is very different. Uh, the boards can give superhuman powers to the management team. And so what we did uh, with Kathy Higgins-Victor, who was the chair of the Nominating and Governance Committee, and Hatim Chabji, who was the non-executive chairman of the board, we rebuilt the board and we said, what skills, what capabilities do we want to have on the board to help us? All right? And so we wanted people with transformation experience, digital experience, services experience, none of the above. And we wanted, of course, to build a diverse board to exemplify the kind of diversity and inclusion we wanted to have at the company. Uh, and that's what we did. And then the relationship with the board is one of vulnerability. You know, day one, we had the committee meetings. Day two is the full board meeting. At the end of day one, we would do a board data. And uh, this would just be me and, and the other board members, no management present. And I would share with them very candidly things that were going well, things that we were working on and that were that was hard. And then we talked to me about the day tomorrow, but in telling them, look, if, if any one of you has got some advice on what we're working on and struggling with, let me know because my name is Hubert. I need help. I'm not the superhero, right? <laughs> we're all in this together. And that creating a level of transparency and, and, and uh, uh, humility and vulnerability, I think, is a key driver of, uh, uh, of success. So uh, I give so much credit to. Uh, of my friends on the board who were so instrumental in our in our journey. Well, I'm sure people are listening going, I wish I had a board like that. As a CEO, assume you have the power, together with the chair and the head of NAMDA, to do that transformation. I was speaking yesterday with a senior executive about this, and it's not always possible. There was a couple of circumstances in my life where I had no influence on who was on the board. But... You know, don't necessarily assume that you don't have an influence. It's like building your team is the most important thing you do. If you're a CEO, making sure you have the right board is absolutely critical. Hubert is talking again from experience on the board of J&J, Johnson & Johnson, and Ralph Lauren. <laughs> Any others, Hubert? No, I, I, I'm so busy. <laughs> no <it>. time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a few nonprofit on the, the board of the museum in, uh, in in Minneapolis, and I will shortly join the, the board of a wonderful uh, institution here in New York City. So. so we have a piece of unfinished business. We talked about the before Best Buy when you arrived, the 2012 Best Buy, and we know the stock went 
beautifully for you. Uh, it just turned around. We know you instilled purpose in so many people. We talked about the little story of Jordan and his T-Rex that head fell off. <laughs> the before story is he's ushered to an aisle and said, oh, yeah, you can just get another one there. There may not be or not. And the, the, the worker won't even show them there. And we've all had that experience of little Jordan's T-Rex. But the after story of this is magnificent, driven by purpose. When I heard that story, which I'm going to share in a second, I said, oh, my God. The performance of the company was starting to take off uh, from a top line standpoint. And it was beyond, you know, reasons. And when I heard that story, I said, oh, I understand. We've unleashed human magic at scale. And it have lost control of the operation. <laughs> what happened on that day, when Jordan and his mother came back to the store, wanting the cure for the dinosaur. It was two blue shirt associates who exactly understood, understood exactly what was going on. Took the sick dinosaur, went behind a counter and started to perform a surgical procedure on the dinosaur. And if you're watching Good Doctor on Amazon, uh, you know, taking the kids through the steps of the procedure. And of course, at the last minute, substituted a new dinosaur, but gave back to the child a cured dinosaur, a healthy dinosaur. So you can imagine the, the happiness of Jordan and his mother. Now, here's the question. I, do you think that at the time, there was a standard operating procedure at Best Buy on how to deal with sick dinosaurs? Or even better, a memo from me, the CEO, brilliant CEO, in these circumstances, this is what you do, and I'm going to measure it, right? Of course not. They found it in their heart to do this. And they found that they had the freedom, the autonomy, and the safety to do that. And so what I realized when I heard that story is that uh, at scale, because this was going on in different ways across the company, people felt that they uh, had a spring in their step and they could make a difference in the life of so many people and do these unpredictable uh, uh, things, really bringing the purpose of the company to have enriching lives you know, through technology, in this case, a, a toy, between touching the lives of these human beings who are our customers. I absolutely love these two associates. Beautiful, beautiful story. And I'm going to finish. I had so many quotes that I pulled from the book. I have so many extensive notes. I stitched two quotes together that really spoke to me. But before I do that, and, and I, I'm not going to finish the show, I'd love you to finish with your final message to those everybody out there and that would be a beautiful way to finish but before i do firstly i want to mention again the book behind hubert is aligned it's by hortense Gentil. hortense is joining us on the show after christmas yep beautifully aligned connecting your true self with the leader you're meant to be so that is coming down the line also behind him is his own book the heart of business i have a copy up for grabs for you on the innovation show.io Absolutely beautiful book. It's commercial, right? This is beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a QVC channel. So there, there are two magnificent books. And also, the last thing I want to ask you before I do the final quote is, where can people find you, Uber? Can you be found? Maybe some CEOs want to reach out if you have time, if you have any capacity left. So the best place where to find me is uh, on uh, org, which is my website. And by the way, on that site, there's a, Lot of uh, interesting content. For example, there is the first uh, ever, I think, uh, business electrocardiogram 
which is 20 questions you can take to assess the health of the heart of your business. Uh, and, you know, there's a, a number of other tools like, uh, you know, the five Bs of purposeful leadership. So there's a bunch of great resources. So that's a great place where to go. The other place is my LinkedIn account. Uh, you know, follow me on LinkedIn and, and write to me on LinkedIn. These are two, uh, two great places. And I love the ECG. Beautiful idea for your business. My final quotes, and then I'm going to hand over to you to close today's show. The notion of the born leader, the superhero with innate abilities is a myth. What is real is an executive coach pointing out your flaws or a colleague pointing out a truth so clearly and succinctly you never forget it. Or a frontline employee showing you how much you have to learn about the lives of people not like you. Vulnerability is at the heart of social connection. Social connection in turn is at the heart of business. And it starts with each of us. Over to you, Hubert. Well, thank you, Aidan, and everybody. Else. I'm going to close where we, with where we studied right? this time where the world is not working properly. And I think that uh, for all of us leaders, and again, we're leaders uh, of our lives at the minimum, we're all of us are leaders, seize the moment, right? Be the, you know, I'll say, be the change that you want to see. Start with doing a great job of defining your purpose and how you want to be remembered. And then progress, you know, be with the rest of us uh, and I'm with the rest of you on this journey to try to become a leader driven by purpose and leading from a place of, of humanity. Learn how to uh, place a noble purpose as the North Star of your business. Learn how to truly put people at the center learn how to embrace all stakeholders in some kind of declaration of interdependence, right? This is not about zero-sum games. And learn how to treat profit as an outcome, not the goal. And finally, most important, learn how to create an environment where people can be the best and where you can truly unleash the human magic that resides in your organizations. Seize the moment. Senior lecturer at Harvard Business School, executive coach, former chairman and CEO of Best Buy, and author of the beautiful book, The Heart of Business Leadership Principles for the Next Era of Capitalism, Hubert Jolie. Merci. Aiden, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. What a pleasure. What a pleasure. Let's bring it to life with a friend of yours, a colleague of yours, and a fellow author in, with the Harvard Business Press, Hubert Jolie. He's a future guest on the show, by the way, with his fantastic new book, but let's bring the value stick to life with the example. He is also former CEO of Best Buy. He was there during a massive turnaround in the organization, and he exemplified the value stick. Yeah, so this is maybe certainly the, one of the most significant turnarounds in the U.S. economy in the last uh, in the last decade or so. If you go back about 10 years, everybody was convinced, including myself, that Best Buy would go out of business because many of its rivals, Circuit City and so on, had, had gone out of business. And it just seemed just about impossible to compete with Amazon. If you're an electronics retailer, like how do you, how do you replicate the amazing job that Amazon has done? And so we looked at Best Buy, we thought brick and mortar, we thought old school, and we thought, oh my God, this is just you know a question of time until they go out of business. And so he takes on this job and they go from, losing about a billion dollars a quarter. 
Imagine like you're losing a billion dollars a quarter to today return on invested capital of probably 25% or so. It's just like an amazing success. And what's really important here is there are just a few ideas that really made all the difference. One of the ideas that really matter was provide faster shipping. They reconceptualized how to think about their stores. Instead of building these big distribution centers, they started thinking of each of the store as a mini warehouse of sorts. And they started shipping from all the stores to all the customers because they have about a thousand stores or so. Stores are really close to customers. For the first time, they started beating Amazon at shipping times. And it turns out, I don't really know why this is, electronics uh, customers are super impatient. So if you ship faster, that is just a big advantage. And then it turns out many people actually, because the stores are so close, they pick up from the store. And while they're in the store, they buy additional merchandise. They might buy a warranty, which of course is great for the business also. It was this really interesting, super simple plan to increase willingness to pay by providing faster shipping times. And then we haven't spoken about the bottom of the value stick, the willingness to sell. Willingness to sell is probably not quite as intuitive as willingness to pay, but here's a good way to think about it. Uh, Imagine a friend of yours who works at some other company uh, and you would like her to join your organization. You're writing the offer letter and you're thinking about what's the minimum compensation that it will take to make her move from where she is right now to your company. That minimum compensation is her willingness to sell. It reflects how much money it will take to attract her. Uh, and of course, if the dream job, if, if the job is her dream job, then it will take less. So willingness to sell falls if the, if the job is more attractive. If the job is, say, I don't know, physically dangerous, then of course it takes more money. And so willingness to sell goes up. So willingness to sell is a way to measure the attractiveness of jobs. And again, it's conceptually appealing because it's really data-driven. And the same plays with suppliers, with vendors in the best Best Buy case. So imagine a negotiation between a vendor and Best Buy. There is a price at which the vendor will say, well, Best Buy is paying me so little. It just makes no sense working, selling through through this particular channel. That's the vendor's willingness to sell. What did Hubert Schulli and his team do? They essentially lowered that benchmark. Why? Because they made it much cheaper to do business with uh, Best Buy. Really a simple idea. We're all familiar with this. The store in a store concept, instead of spending millions and millions of dollars the way Apple does, uh, building these really beautiful stores, they went to Sony, they went to Microsoft, they went to Samsung and said, well, you know, why don't you spend much less money and you actually have a store at a place that has lots of customers? So willingness to sell the cost of working with Best Buy goes down, creating value. And that value is then being shared between the vendor, they have lower cost, and Best Buy, they get lower prices for the merchandise that they buy. And so it's really only two ideas, which I find quite fascinating how you go with two ideas from basically being hopeless to being one of the superstars now. Willingness to pay as a result of faster shipping times and then willingness to sell as a result of reducing your supplier's cost 
the store and the store idea.